following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I thank you for a church that wants to proclaim that. church that wants to share their love with those around us, a church that cares for those beyond the walls of this place so that we can share that hope with others. We give you glory. And now we seek your presence. And now we desire your abundance. And now, O Lord, we treasure your gifts, your manifold gifts. We thank you, Father, for Pastor Greg's safe return to us. We thank you for your sustaining grace in his life at his seminary work this past week. After a long flight yesterday, Lord, we pray that you give him strength this morning to deliver that message that you have for us. Empower him by your spirit. We thank you for your word, that we have your word to proclaim, not our own. We rejoice in that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen invite you, if you would, to turn to Luke chapter 18. This morning I want us to uh, look at verses 9 through 14 of Luke chapter 18. Uh, We're going to look at one of Jesus' parables. It's been a very long time since we've taught through Jesus' uh, teaching, and particularly His teaching in parables. And uh, so I want us this morning to do that. Just kind of jumping into the mix of, of Luke's gospel, uh, looking at, uh, at one brief parable that Jesus told. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Let me read that for you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord. There are really three kinds of people in the world around us. You could 
really take all of the folks around us that you navigate with on a given day or given week or really throughout your whole lifetime, or you could even categorize all the people who really ever walked on the place of the earth, uh, the face of the earth, and categorize them, categorize them in at least these three categories. The first is the category of people who just outright reject God, either through just outright active rejection. They just say, hey, there is no God. I don't believe in a God. There is no God. This world is all that there is. This life is all that there is. Live it up. That's it. Get over the delusion that there's a God. There's those folks. In that same category of those who reject God or those who reject Him in a much more passive way, they're just indifferent. They're just ambivalent towards God. It's not that they hate God. It's not that they outright reject Him. It's just that they don't care. It's just not, it just never kind of crosses the radar. It's just not important to them. They've, they're busy. They've got things to do. They've got work. They've got families. Uh, they've got uh, activities and hobbies and things that they do, and that consumes their life. And really, God just never crosses the radar of their mind. It's just that He just isn't an issue in their life. In both cases, it's a rejection of God. One's just sort of an active rejection. The other is more of a passive rejection. But that's one category of humanity, people who just outright deny God. Beyond that, there are two other categories, and they are really subcategories of the category of those who, who confess that there is a God, that there is a Creator who has made men and before whom men must give an account. Underneath that category are really two subcategories. It's, it's, it's those who who think they can earn their way into this God's good graces by the things that they do. And then there's the third category of those who see Him and then see themselves and realize that there is no possible way that someone like them could ever earn their way into His good graces. Really three categories of people. People who outright reject God, those who believe that there is a God and think that they can get into His good graces in the end by doing good things. And those who believe that there is a God and realize that they have no hope in and of themselves to ever earn His favor, but that He must do something for them. Everybody you know fits into one of those categories. All of humanity fits into one of those categories. And concerning those last two kinds, there are two kinds of general religions in the world that are aimed at those last two categories. There are works-based religions... Religions that are all set up around the concept that you can do certain things to earn God's favor. That you can do rituals, that you can live a certain way, that you can behave a certain way, that you can act a certain way, think a certain way, live a certain way. And by doing those things, you'll earn the favor of God. There are all sorts of religions in the world that are aimed that way. In fact, most of the religions of the world fit that category. Whether it be Islam, whether it be Old Testament Judaism whether it be Mormonism in today, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these things give us pathways of things to do in order to earn the favor of God. Or there's a second kind of a religion. It's the religion that's a gospel of grace. That is what makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world. It stands apart from all of the other religions of the world. It says at the heart of its message, there is a God before whom you're accountable, before whom all of us are accountable, but there is nothing you can do to earn His favor. The only way to enter into His presence is by His good grace, by Him doing something for you that you could never do for yourself. That is foundational to Christianity. And it is the very issue to which Jesus speaks in this parable. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. 
We haven't been studying Luke's gospel, so I wanted to give you just a bit of a background. This is a parable. We haven't been studying parables, but let me just give you a quick definition of a parable so you know what a parable is, if you don't already. A parable is really simple. It was one of the ways that Jesus taught for a period of his earthly ministry, and it's simply a fictional short story that uses sort of familiar scenes and everyday objects and relationships to explain spiritual truths. Now, that's easy to understand, right? It's just a story you made up. It's a made-up story with fictional people, fictional circumstances um, that Jesus tells. But it's a story that's not just meant to entertain. It's a story that's intended to convey a point, a spiritual point. He uses physical people and physical things and physical events. But it's not just about that. There's a message underneath it that's a spiritual message. When you're reading the parables, you should understand that parables normally have just one primary meaning. Sometimes there's a secondary meaning. But ordinarily, Jesus intends to convey one thing by the parable. And almost exclusively, the parables center around the issue of what is the kingdom of God. Or put it another way, what does it look like to be a Christian? All the parables relate to that somehow. And so Jesus, for a period of his ministry, spoke in parables. And you might ask yourself the question, why did he do that? Why did he speak in parables? Why not just speak in plain language that everybody could understand? He did that quite often as well. Prior to starting to speak in parables, that's primarily how he taught. He he, he taught like I'm teaching. He just spoke propositional truth that people could understand. But there was a distinct change at one point in his ministry. Um, Back in uh, earlier in the gospel, he says this. Uh, Luke tells us, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. And he begins to quote from Isaiah the prophet, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, that's a lengthy way of Jesus saying simply this. The reason I speak to them in parables is because it is a judgment on them. It's a judgment. Parables, you need to understand, parables are a judgment. They're a judgment on unbelieving Israel. Up to this point, Jesus has made clear who he is through miracles and through the testimony of what he spoke. They had largely rejected him, and particularly the religious establishment of his day had utterly rejected him and opposed him at every turn. And so Jesus says, okay, as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, I'm going to now begin to speak in a way that you'll never understand. The parables that he spoke were meant to not be understood. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? Jesus tells these stories so that the people who are listening, most of them, will not understand it. But some will. Some will. He tells the disciples, it's for you. You'll understand them. But what we find as we look in the Gospels is Jesus speaks in parables. Even the, even the, the apostles rarely understood. They would often have to come back to him privately after he told a parable and pull him aside and say, Hey, Jesus, what was that about? Can you explain that to us? And when, he would ask for, when they would ask for an explanation, you know what he would do every time? He'd explain it. He'd make it clear. So we know what most of the parables mean because Jesus includes an explanation. We can also tell, like in this case, by the context looking back. 
But it's, it's important to understand as Jesus tells his story, the story is not meant to be understood by those who hate him. It would have done nothing, you'll see, as we move our way through, but infuriate them. But it was meant for his disciples, and it was meant for people like you, for people like me. But these parables are a judgment, and this parable is a judgment. And Jesus is going to tell us a story here. He makes up a fictitious story that's intended to convey a very spiritual truth, actually several spiritual truths related to one central theme. And it's a vivid story. It is a vivid story, although it's short. And you're thankful this morning that it's short. And I am too. We're going to look at it this morning. We're going to look at the players, that is the people who were involved in the story. We're going to look at their positions. Um, kind of, that's an important part of this parable. And we're going to look at their prayers. The, the players, their positions, and their prayers. That tells us all we need to know about the story. And it tells us all we need to know about how we need to look at our own lives this morning. He simply introduces the story. It simply tells us in verse 9, he also told this parable to some. The setup is important. Um, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there are people in the crowd who fit that description, trusted in themselves and treated others how? With contempt. Okay, you, you, know, that, you know that category of people, right? Self-righteous, snobbish, looking down their nose at everybody else. I mean, you know those people, right? You've run into them. Do you, maybe you look at them in the mirror. I don't know. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, just saying, if that's you this morning, then, hey, there's, there's hope. There's time. We've, we've got an hour here. Um, no, no, not an hour. I'm kidding. But that's who this story is directed to. And it's directed to them, but they're not meant to understand it. But the others around will make sense of it, and you and I can make sense of it. So Jesus says the story. Here's the story. Here's the players. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Very common scene in ancient Israel. A crowd of people going up to the temple to pray. It happened all the time. All the time. The, the temple was the, the, sort of the central feature of is, Israelite worship. And it was a place of prayer. People were regularly by, in droves going up to the temple to pray. Um, coming on their own at various times. And then coming at appointed times as well. Very common scene in Israel. Would have been very common to everyone who was listening to this story. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a day when everybody was going up to the temple to pray. And there were two particular men on this day. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the players, the Pharisee, is a Pharisee. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' days. They were self-centered, self-righteous, pious, proud, corrupt people. That's what they were. Self-centered, self-righteous, pious, proud, corrupt. They looked down their noses with contempt at other people. They believed themselves to be super spiritual, and everybody else was somehow beneath them. They had taken God's relatively straightforward and simple law and turned it into just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of minute little laws. That, and, they, and they took those laws and imposed them upon the people as a burden. I mean, they just tried to control every little tidbit of every Israelite's life with these religious laws. And the, the message that came from them was, if you want to be right with God, you keep all these laws. And they were personally meticulous about keeping those laws. The laws that they 
forced upon everybody and the laws that they proudly kept themselves were almost exclusively external laws, behavioral things, things to do. So they were experts at keeping all the little points of the law, the little tiny details they kept in their lives, and they made sure everybody knew it, and they were experts at pointing out when somebody else failed to live up. Don't you just love those people? They're wonderful to be around at dinner. That's sarcasm. You need to know this about them. They like to make a spectacle about their own righteousness in public for people to see. They love for people to see them being holy, and they love for people to look at them and say, Oh, look at that guy. He's holy. He's spiritual. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to, to a crowd, and he's talking to them about giving their tithes, and they're talking to them about praying, and here's what he says to them in Matthew 6, verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. That's great, isn't it? Do you want to be? You want to give to the needy? Do it in such a way that nobody knows about it. Don't do it like those hypocrites in the synagogue. Who do you think he's talking about? The Pharisees. They love to have people look at them when they were giving their money, so people would think, "Oh, look at that guy. He's giving all of his money to the church." And in verse five of Matthew six, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. They loved to pray not because they were truly pious, Jesus said. They loved to pray. Why? They loved for people to see them pray. So they would do it in the synagogue, and they'd make a spectacle of it so they would capture the attention of people. Or they would just go on the street corner and pray out in public. You'd say, wow, you're walking down the street going to get your chicken or whatever you're going to get in the marketplace. And there's a Pharisee. Look at that guy. He's, he's praying out in public. Ooh, he must be spiritual. These Pharisees were the religious elite of their society. People looked up to them and looked up to them as the most committed, the most spiritual people in Israel. So as Jesus sets up this parable, he introduces two characters. And the first character that he introduces would have been instantly understood by those who were hearing, Oh, a Pharisee. That's the most spiritual, most committed man in Israel. That's player number one. But Jesus says it's not just a story about a Pharisee. It's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Tax collector. Now, if there was anybody that was the opposite of a Pharisee, it was a tax collector. If the Pharisees were looked at as the spiritual elite in society, the most committed, most spiritual of the men, the, the tax collectors were the exact opposite. They were the lowlifes. They were like the scum of society. I mean, you couldn't pick a more scummy person in Jesus' day to tell a story about than a tax collector. I don't know if anybody in here works for the Internal Revenue Service or not. To the modern day, because I don't think any exist. But um, there's really no parallel, actually, in modern day. I mean, in, in ancient Israel, tax collectors, I mean, they, they were the lowest of the low in that society. You see, what they had done is tax collectors were typically Israelites who had purchased a tax-collecting franchise from the Romans, you know, the Gentile Romans who the Israelites hated. They would purchase a franchise to collect taxes on behalf of the Romans, taxes that the Israelites uh, hated. And they would then go out and get a group of thugs to go around with them and beat out of the people the taxes that they didn't want to give to the Roman government. It wasn't like today where there were all these you know, laws about what they can and cannot do. No, it was, here's your tax, pay it now, or these guys take you out back. 
Oh, and by the way, add an extra 2 or 3% on top of that. Because that's what I'm going to pocket from you. That's the kind of people tax collectors were. And it wasn't just the fact that they were that they were hated because of what they did. They were idolaters. They were oppressors. They were thugs in many ways. People who extorted money from their own people. But it was the company that they kept. I mean, they hung around with the lowest of low, too. I mean, tax collectors, what kind of people hang around with scummy people? Well, if you're going to be scummy people, scummy people tend to hang around with scummy people. So Jesus picks the scummiest guy he could talk about, a tax collector. And tax collectors were known for hanging around with other kinds of sinners in the eyes of the people. Adulterous prostitutes would have fit into that category in their day. So they're thugs who people hate because they rip them off and, and, and by way of stealing their taxes. And not only that, they hang around with just as scummy people as they are. Jesus couldn't have painted the picture of a person who was the most repulsed and furthest from God that he could have painted in a story. So you get it? It's a story about two people. Two people that couldn't be further opposites from one another in their society in their day. One, the spiritual elite. If anybody has a, is a shoe into the kingdom of God, it's that guy and the lowest of the low. If there's anybody who's never getting anywhere near the gates of heaven, it's this tax collector. Or you could say it this way. This tax collector is the worst sinner Jesus could deploy in a story in his day. You got it? Those are the players. It's a story about a spiritually elite man and an awful, perhaps the worst of sinners. I mean, Jesus couldn't have picked a more a, a, a brighter contrast than he picks in this story. You've got, on one hand, the most religious person that any Jew could imagine. On the other hand, the least religious. On one hand, the most moral person imaginable. On the other hand, the most immoral person imaginable. And these two men, Jesus says, go up to a temple to pray. Now, this should be interesting, right? What's going to happen when these two guys go in the temple to pray? Daily prayers happened every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. Burnt, burnt offering sacrifices were going on during these times. People would go up to the temple to pray. They would make blood sacrifices as a part of Old Testament atonement culture. And they would go and make sacrifices and they would pray. It was a very, very important part of Israelite worship. And people did it all the time. And these two men were going in a very common scene up to the temple to pray. And so that's the players. Jesus tells us something about what happens when they get in there. They get into the temple and they go up to the temple to pray. And then we see their positions. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Okay, so they get in the temple. Where does the Pharisee position himself? Well, we're told he's off standing by himself. And the idea that he's standing up, praying out loud, and this is a, actually a challenging verse to translate. Sometimes you'll see it translated that he was praying thus, like the ESV says, or the New American Standard translate this. He was stood and was praying to himself. It could even be translated he was praying about himself. Probably the reality is all of those things are what was going on with this guy in Jesus' story. He's standing up because we know already that Pharisees like to pray in ways that are visible. So he wants to be seen. 
He's praying to himself, likely about himself. And when we read the kind of thing that he prays, we find that he only mentions God's name once, and that's at the beginning. And he says the word I four times. So who is he praying about? He's praying about himself. This guy is not what the people think he is. He's not what they've imagined him to be. He's parading himself. He's not praying to God. He's not praying to God. He's not praising God. He's not giving God honor or glory. He's not submitting himself to God. He's not asking anything from God. He asks for no mercy. He asks for no grace. He asks for no forgiveness. He asks for no help in his prayer. He doesn't need any of those things, he doesn't think. He only mentions God at the very beginning because that's the way you're supposed to begin praying, right? You have to at least say God at the beginning. It's most likely that in this story what's happened is this guy has, has, has positioned himself as near as possible to the holy place. Because if you remember the way the temple is set up, um, you've got these courts and only certain people can go inside each court. And when you get to the innermost courts, you know, the idea is that the further you go into the temple, the closer you're getting to the symbolic presence of the Lord. And so the idea was the holier you were, the closer you could get to the presence of the Lord. So you can imagine this Pharisee who's wanting to be seen walks in, gets as near as he possibly can to the holy place, nearest to God, because he saw himself that way. He saw himself as being as near to God's righteousness as anybody could possibly be. So he positions himself close, and he likely positions himself away from everybody else. Because after all, someone as holy as him wouldn't want to touch or rub up against, you know, people like us. You know, dirty people. So he's close to the front. He's off by himself. We know that from the text. And he's praying out loud about himself. And he's standing. Now, there's nothing wrong with standing and praying. You can stand and pray. You can kneel and pray. You can sit and pray. You can pray wherever you like, however you like. But Jesus makes a point to say that he's standing because he's going to contrast him with the other guy in the story. But the idea is, you you just got to picture this in your mind. This Pharisee, dressed in his religious garb, strutting his his self-righteous self through the temple, getting as near to God as possible, standing off away from everybody with his hands up in the air so that everybody can see him, praying out loud about himself to himself, basking in all of his self-righteous glory. What about the other guy? What about this other guy? Excuse me, Luke tells us, but the tax collector... Standing far off, the ESV says, NIV says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. Stood at a distance. See, where the Pharisee is as close to the holy place as he can get. He's in the inner court. He's as close to the symbolic presence of God as he could possibly get because he thinks he belongs there. He thinks he deserves to be there. He thinks he's earned that. The other hand, this man, this tax collector, is where? He's way off at a distance. He's in there. He's in the room. But he's about as far away from the symbolic presence of the Lord as he could possibly get. Why? Because he knows who he is. He looks at himself in the mirror every day like everybody else. He knows what he does for a living. He knows what people think about him. And somewhere deep down inside his conscience, he knows that what he does is vile. He knows that he's a vile man. And he knows in that building, in his own heart, he knows, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. I am a filthy, rotten man. 
I have no business being in here, and I have no right to be in the presence of God. I have no right to draw near to God whatsoever. So he's off at a distance as far away as he can be and be in the room. That's a, there's a humility about this man. He understands himself, and he knows who God is. And he understands that the contrast between who he is, his own righteousness, and the righteousness of a holy God is so vast that it's a chasm that, at least in his own mind, seems impossible to go across. But he's in the building. At least at some part of his heart, he believes that there might just be hope, even for a tax collector. What else are we told? He's at a distance. We're told he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He wouldn't even look up there. So he's far off and his face is down. I mean, again, you see the contrast. The other guy is standing up in front of everybody with his face up to heaven. Oh, God, I'm going to look you in the eye. Because, man, we're buddies. We're, we're, I mean, I'm right there with you, guy. And this other guy is as far away. His head is down in shame and humility. He won't even look up. He, it's as though he's too ashamed to even lift his head. He's overwhelmed with his own guilt. He's overwhelmed with his own shame. He knows he's unworthy. He knows he's a swindler. He knows he's dishonest, a cheat, and he's corrupt. He's irreligious. He's a lawbreaker. He knows it. He feels it. He believes it. And as we're going to see, he confesses it with his own mouth. This man feels the full weight of his alienation from God. He feels it. And it's, and it's obvious in his position. It's obvious in where he places himself and how he carries himself in the room. He feels the the weight of his sin. And he understands that there is a God and that he's going to have to give an account to that God. And in the midst of his shame and his humiliation, underneath there is fear. There's fear. I'm going to have to face that God one day. And I know I don't measure up tells us in the story that he beat his chest. Now, we people, people today don't really do that. Tarzan in the movie, that's about it. We don't go around beating our chest. But in Jesus' day, people beat their chest. It was, a, it, was, it was, in fact, it was an expression of deep sorrow. In fact, it was one of the most visible ways you could, people would express bodily their, their grief and their sorrow. They would beat on their own chests. That's what this man is doing. Not to capture the attention of anybody. It's just an expression of what's going on inside his troubled heart. He's standing before a holy God. And he understands his unworthiness and his unholiness. And his heart is filled with grief and sorrow. And all he can do is it just comes out in this beating of his chest with his face down. Do you see the contrast? These two people can be more opposite, could they? It's a wonderful story. I'm giving you all this information. The Jews who are listening to Jesus tell this story would have known all of this. As soon as Jesus introduced those two men and told the story. And they would have been hanging on the edge of their seat to find out what's going to happen when these two go in there and pray. So what do they pray? Well, listen to this wonderful prayer by the Pharisee. He stands with his hands up so everybody can see him and here's what he prays. God, the only time he mentions him, first thing out of his mouth, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's brilliant, isn't it? God, I thank you that I'm so wonderful. That's great, isn't it? I mean, just want to invite this guy over for dinner, right? I thank you that I'm not like other men. 
I thank you that you've made me such a wonderful person. I thank you that I am who I am. I look at myself in the mirror and I say, man, you're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it, people like you. Some of you will get that TV flashback. I mean, the, the hubris of this guy is amazing, right? This is an, I mean, an unconditional, unequivocal confession to God of his own worthiness and his own righteousness. God, I thank you that I'm as awesome as I am. I thank you that I'm good enough. I thank you that I'm good enough to have a relationship with you. I thank you that I'm good enough to be here in your temple. I thank you that I'm good enough to be standing in this holy place. I thank you that I'm good enough to be a paragon of religious righteousness and virtue. I thank you that I'm so good that I can stand here so all these lowlifes can see what a really godly man looks like. God, I thank you that I am the man I am. And he goes on to explain to God why he is such a good man first thing he tells God is, I thank you that I'm here and that I'm such a great guy. I thank you that I'm so moral. He, he declares to God his own morality, right? He explains his own morality by contrasting himself with other people in his society. Don't you love this? As though God needs some further explanation. I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, in case you need some illustrations, you know, extortioners, you know, the unjust, you know, adulterers and, you know, so forth. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. You know who those people are? Those are the people that this man despises. The people that he hates. I thank you that I'm not like them. I thank you that I am not like those people. I thank you that I'm not like those lowly sinners out there. By the way, robbery evil-doing, adultery, were all the kinds of sins that were associated with tax collectors. And it's almost as though, in the midst of this declaration, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like adulterers and robbers and thieves and evil people. It's almost like in the midst of praying that he looks out and sees the tax collector. It's almost like that. I mean, I'm not sure, I can't be certain of that, but it seems like it because it's in, right in the middle of his sentence. He says, I thank you I'm not like other men. Even like this tax collector. Man, that's bold, isn't it? It's not, it's not good enough to declare your own righteousness for everybody. It's not good enough to say how much better you are than all the sinners in the world. He wants to point somebody out and give a living illustration. Right in the middle of the temple. Thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. Again, in his prayer, he asks nothing from God. He seeks nothing from God. Apparently, he thinks he needs nothing from God. He just wants people to hear how morally righteous he is. God, I thank you that I am such a moral man. And he probably was on the outside. But he goes on. He explains to God not only how moral he is, but he explains to him how religious he is. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. It's not just that I'm a moral guy, but God, what makes me extra awesome is I'm religious too. I mean, it's one thing to be a good man. It's another thing to be a good man and a religious man, right? God, let me give you some examples of that in case you haven't been paying attention too. I fast twice a week. You know what fasting is, right? Fasting is it's abstaining from food, from food for a period of time. 
in order to consecrate yourself to the Lord and give full attention to something that's going on spiritually in your life. It's, it's prescribed in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was actually only one prescribed fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 31. It called for that one fast. But these guys are super religious. They were not satisfied with just one fast a year, right? Nobody's going to see how wonderful they are if they only do it once a year. So they just fast all the time. And they make it known that they're fasting. You know, you just go out, you go out into the public square sometime where there's going to be busy and there's going to be lots of people around. You put some ashes on your head and you look hungry, you know. You go stand out in front of In-N-Out Burger. I've been in California for the last week, you know, where everybody's scarfing down double cheeseburgers, fries, and you just look hungry. And people are going to say, oh, look at that guy. He's fasting. He's fasting. This guy isn't good enough. It's not good enough once a, once a year. He fasts, what, twice a week. Twice a week he does this. He's very religious. And not only that, he gives a tenth of all that he gets. He tithes. He tenth, he's a tenth of all that he gets. God, it's not only that I, that I fast all this, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, man, I'm generous. I, I, I keep the tithes. I'm religious. I give to the church. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus calls out Pharisees like this man, real ones. He says, Woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law like justice, mercy, faithfulness. But the point there is Jesus calls them out. That's what they did. They would tithe everything. They would, even to the little teeny tiny spices that they would get in their home. I mean, can you imagine getting a, thing, a little tiny jar of spices? And pouring them out and carving out an exactly a tenth and taking it to the temple. Oh, we've got to make sure that we give a tenth of everything, even my spices, the little tiny things. I mean, it's just brilliant, isn't it? God, I'm super moral, and look how religious I am. I do all the religious stuff to perfection, even to the little tiny minutiae. The things nobody else would even dream of I do. That's how religious I am. went way beyond the law. You see, the dominant religious idea in Jesus' day and the dominant religious idea in our day and in every day has always been and still is the idea that good people go to heaven. That if you want to be right with God, just be good. Be religious. And Jesus paints the picture of the best, most religious person of of the day in his day, at least in the eyes of the people. That was how this Pharisee believed. This was how all Pharisees believed. If you were a moral person, you could achieve your salvation. If you were good enough and you did all the moral things, you avoided all the sins, and you did all the external moral stuff, you hung around with the other moral people like you, you did all the religious stuff right down to the minutiae of your life, then God couldn't help but be pleased with that. If you were moral and you're religious, you could be right with God. If you were moral and you were religious, you could achieve your own salvation. If you were moral and you were religious, you could escape divine punishment. You could become acceptable to God. It's frankly the biggest lie that's dominated the world from Jesus' day to ours. At a funeral here yesterday 
for a godly man who went to be with the Lord this week. And, you know, I didn't get to know Mr. Cohn earlier in his life. As I got to know him, it was later in his life, and his health was already deteriorating. But I've heard a lot about him, and I know he was a good man, moral man. I know he's a religious man. But this week when he stood before the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, it wasn't his goodness, it wasn't his morality, it wasn't his religion that ushered him into the kingdom of the Lord forever. It wasn't the fact that he was a good man or a religious man. It was the fact that he was a man who was utterly unlike this Pharisee. He was much more like the other. Someone who understood in his own heart that you can't possibly earn your way into God's kingdom by your goodness or your religious works. Much more like this tax collector. You see, that's the main difference. The tax collector listened to his prayer. He's standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, here's his prayer. You remember the other prayer? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Here's this man's prayer. It's simple. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. It's all you need to know. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only words that can come out of that man's mouth. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. New American Standard translates it this way. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. When this man looks at himself in the mirror, it's the exact opposite of how that Pharisee looked when he looked at himself in the mirror. When this guy looked in the mirror, he understood who he was in relationship to his God. He was the sinner. That's it. He had nothing good to commend himself before a holy God. All he had was his filth and his sin. That's all he's got. He understood he has nothing inside of him to merit God's favor. He understands that his only hope, and I'm sure in his mind it was the slimmest of hopes, was that somehow, some way, God might show him mercy. That's it. There's no, there's no hint of, God, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll try to be more moral, I'll, I'll start doing religious things. Nope, none of that. It's My only hope is that God might possibly, somehow, be merciful on someone who does not deserve it me it's hard to capture in the English translation but when he says be merciful to me a sinner he's talking in atonement language he is very familiar with what's going on in that temple he understands that every day people are bringing animals and they're being sacrificed and blood is being spilled out as an atonement for their sin he understands that whole concept he's not just giving this general plea for mercy what he's saying is, God, if there is any slim possible chance that the atonement that's being done in this temple could somehow possibly cover my sin, if there's any way for that to happen, be merciful to me and let it happen. He's saying, I'm a wretched sinner. I'm unworthy to stand anywhere near you. I'm unworthy to look up to heaven toward you. I am in profound agony and pain over my own wretchedness. And I need an atonement to be applied to my sins or I have no hope whatsoever. He understands things like substitution and atonement 
Perhaps he even knew that there was prophecy of a son of, of David who was going to come one day who would once and for all make atonement permanently for everybody's sin. Perhaps he knew those prophecies. Perhaps he didn't. But in either case, he's planning, he's pleading, he's begging God. If there's any way possible, be merciful and make atonement for my sin. It's amazing, isn't it? The contrast couldn't be more vivid. Two opposite people in every way. It's a vivid story that would have captured the imagination of everyone listening. And it comes to the climax at the end that just would have blown everyone away. We know the story's end before it began, but they didn't. Because when Jesus said these words in verse 14, jaws would have dropped. Jesus said this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. That's scandalous to a first century Jew. You've painted this picture. Okay, we see the Pharisee. We see the tax collector. We see what they're praying. Okay, get that. How's it going to end, Jesus? Well, here's how it ends. They both get up and they both go back to their house. And one of them goes back right before God, justified. And the other goes back unjustified. The two men who came in are the two men that leave. And the one you would have thought is the worst sinner in the world leaves the room right with God. And the one that you would have thought was the most moral man in the planet walks away as far away from God as possible. God is saying, Jesus is saying by this story, these two men that you think are the exact opposite, the way that you think of them is exactly the opposite way God thinks of them. You think one's utter, uber-religious. He walks out of the room unjustified. That means he walks out of the room guilty before God. And this one that you think is a filthy, rotten, low-life, scum sinner, he walked out of the room clean. You see, the way you view these two men and the way God views them is the opposite. And Jesus is saying to them by this simple little story, you misunderstand how this world operates. You think that the key to being made right with God is by being moral and being religious. It has nothing to do with it. The key to being right with God is realizing how immoral you are and how worthless your religion is to merit any favor in God's eyes. In fact, the only way that you can be justified the only way that any man, any woman can be made right with God is to assume the position of the tax collector. Is to come before the God of the universe low, with a contrite and humbled heart, with eyes that see yourself for who you truly are, one who has violated his law and is utterly unrighteous regardless of how moral you think you are on the outside, regardless of how religious of a person you are. It's understanding that those things do nothing more to merit God's favor than anything else anyone else could do. That your only hope is that God would apply atonement to you that you don't deserve. That the God against whom you've rebelled would somehow, some way, be merciful to you in ways that you don't deserve.
That's the message of this story. Any religious Jew who was listening to that story would have thought this was the most scandalous story ever told. They would have been infuriated by it. That's why it's what Jesus' parable was meant to evoke. But there were some who heard it. And there were some who got it. And they understood. And the light bulb came on. If you want to be made right with God, it comes through humility and a recognition that you're a sinner who's violated His law. It's rebelled against Him. And your only hope is that He would be merciful and do something for you you could never do for yourself. That He would apply the righteousness of someone else to your account and forgive your sin. Let me wrap this up by just giving you some simple truths that come out of this passage. And I'll just put them up there because they're so obvious from the story. But they don't need a whole lot of comment. Here are the truths you need to understand from a simple little story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. We have to recognize that every one of us is a sinner who deserves hell. It doesn't matter how we compare to other people. That's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter if we think we're more moral or more religious like the Pharisee or if we think we're the scum of the earth like the tax collector, the lowest of the low in his day. It doesn't matter. It begins by realizing that we're sinners who rebelled against our Creator. Second, have to recognize that we can't earn our salvation by our good works. That's the point of the story. If the most moral and most religious person in Jesus' day couldn't measure up, then neither can you by any of your good works. I think just being a good person by standards that either you've articulated for yourself or that you think are acceptable in society, you just try not to lie, you try not to steal, you try to be faithful to your spouse, be a good person, do moral things, that's wonderful, but it doesn't merit God's favor. Or by religious things, coming to church. You guys have done something very religious this morning. You came to church. A lot of people aren't doing that. It doesn't merit your favor before God. You come in this room every Sunday. You could listen to me drone on forever. It doesn't earn you one ounce of merit before God. It's not our good works. It's not our religion. It's not our morality. I have to recognize it to be saved. God must do for us something that we can't do for ourselves. That's where true repentance begins. It begins by realizing that God has to do something for us that we can't do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to this. Paul tells us that God has done exactly that. Paul says, God made Him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin to become what? Sin for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what that tax collector was pleading for. God, please be merciful to me, sinner. Do for me what I can't do. God says, okay, I'll do that for you. I'll send someone who's utterly perfect. In fact, I'll come my very own self. Assume human form. I'll live a perfect life before you. And I'll give my very own life on a cross. I'll take on your sin and die for it. And I'll impute to you my righteousness so that you can be made right to me. That's what it looks like for God to be merciful to a sinner. And the Lord Jesus Christ has done that on our behalf. 
for a person to genuinely be made right with God. They must repent. And repentance looks like abandoning all hope in our morality and our religion and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope. The mercy of God and the person of Jesus is the only hope for any human being ever to be made right before God. That's it. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way for a filthy tax collector to be made right before his Creator is that God would be merciful and die on his behalf and grant him righteousness that he didn't earn. And that's the only hope for any sinner of any generation of human beings anywhere in the world at any time in any place. If you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's only one way to be made right with your God. And that's to assume the position of this tax collector. I don't mean you need to fall on the ground on your knees and put your head to the floor. I simply mean you need to realize who you are in light of who he is. And understand that your morality will never get you there and your religion will never get you there. That your only hope is to turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Committing your life to him. Believing by faith that he will do for you what you could never do for yourself. Forgive your sin. Grant you his righteousness. Become the Lord and Savior of your very own soul. The Word of God promises us that any who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you will call upon him this morning, it's guaranteed that he'll do that for you. Or you could continue to go on trying to earn it yourself. Last thought on this. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a corollary point, but it's very important. And it's simply this. Spiritual pride has a blinding effect on men. I wish we had more time to play that out this morning, but I think it's pretty obvious from that Pharisee, his obscene behavior. He thinks he's being very, very religious. In fact, he's being a blazing hypocrite. Seeing himself as morally exalted and seeing everybody else as somehow beneath him. He actually hates sinners. He really does. He hates tax collectors. He hates adulterers. He hates prostitutes. He hates liars. He hates lawbreakers. He wouldn't even dream of ever associating with such scum. Because after all, he's full of all sorts of spiritual pride. And it's important for us to remember, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly if you've been a Christian for a length of time, that that temptation to become what that man is a caricature of is very real temptation for your own life. If you ever find yourself looking down your nose at other people, thinking in your own mind, man, I'm glad I'm not them, you're probably a whole lot closer to that Pharisee than what any of us would like to imagine. It wasn't the way of Jesus, was it? In fact, one of the biggest criticisms of Jesus from the people like this Pharisee was what? He associates with tax collectors and sinners. That's what he was known. He was known for associating with those kind of people. Apparently, he cared about them. Apparently, he loved them. Apparently, he thought they were exactly the kind of people that were prime recipients for his grace. People who understand that they need it. Not people who think that they already earned it. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, this story is marvelous. And just our time together as we've explored it, we see so many applications. But the primary way you meant it is the way we need to remember it. There's only one way to be made right for you, with you. That's to trust you, to repent of our sin and turn to you in humble recognition that you're our only hope. I pray that if there's someone in this place who doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, who's never come to that place where they've been, seen themselves in the position of that tax collector, that they've never seen themselves for who they really are, a rebel who's rebelled against their Creator, who one day will stand before a holy God and give an account. I pray that in this moment they would see that of themselves. And seeing the vast difference between their unrighteousness and your perfect holiness would cause them in their heart to cry out to you, Oh God, be merciful to me. Apply the righteousness of your Son to my account and forgive my sin. For you're my only hope. You've promised to anyone, any human being, no matter how rotten of a sinner they think they are, approaches you that way can get up from this room this morning and walk out the room justified before you. You've promised that. And I pray that you'd make it a reality for someone this morning. For that man or that woman who's been trusting in their own morality, their own religious activity to save them, I pray that you'd help them to, Lord, just see through that lie. That this morning they would be crushed in their hearts and drawn to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And for those who've known you, Lord, for some time, who understand what it is to deal with spiritual pride, to begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, I pray in these quiet moments you would obliterate any sense of the spirit of that Pharisee in our lives. May we never do righteous things to be seen. May we never think of ourselves as better than anyone. May we never look down at other people because of who they are or how they live. But may we live in the world around us with the love of Jesus that understands that there is no sin that's too dark that Christ can't save. And may we be willing to associate with those who need you the most giving them the truth of the gospel that they desperately need to hear. We pray in Jesus' name.